This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Just a couple of months ago, in April, the drug Mifepristone was all over the headlines. A federal judge in Texas blocked the federal government's decades-old approval of Mifepristone, ruling it was not properly tested. But another judge in Washington state ruled the pill is safe. Whichever side loses that ruling could still appeal and possibly, ultimately, go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Are we going to back down? Tonight, protests across the country with the battle over access to the abortion pill now in the hands of the Supreme Court. The medication is commonly used to end a pregnancy and now sits in limbo as the country awaits a final Supreme Court ruling. But this is not the first time that Mifepristone has been the subject of controversy. The fight to bring the abortion pill to America back in the 1990s It's a fascinating story that involves drug smuggling through New York City's JFK airport, militant anti-abortion activists, and a battle in the highest court. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Now that history is being documented in a new podcast series that's debuting on July 1st. It's called Cover Up, The Pill Plot. And we're joined now by the creator and host of the series, TJ Raphael. Welcome back to Reset, TJ. Hi, Sasha. Great to be here. So I'm curious, what got you interested in this story? Yeah, just a few days after Roe versus Wade was overturned, I decided I wanted my next story to be uh, related to abortion. And I started to look into the history of the abortion pill and stumbled upon this wild story that really feels like it was ripped out of an Ocean's Eleven film (laughs) with a touch of Breaking Bad in there as well. And I... (laughs) had my jaw kind of on the floor and I couldn't believe that the story really hadn't been told before. Um, so I started digging and what I found uh, is is incredibly entertaining and, and also uh, mind-blowing as it relates to how the pill actually got across the line to finally get FDA approval. So take us back to the, to the time period that you focus on in the podcast. What was the state of abortion access like in the late 80s and early 90s, first of all? Yeah, during this time in the late 80s and early 90s, a militant anti-abortion movement begins to emerge. It's called Operation Rescue, and their goal is to shut down every abortion clinic in the United States. They eventually want to criminalize abortion, and they start to physically barricade clinic entrances. Um, One of their biggest stunts was in Wichita, Kansas. In 1991, it was a 47-day-long siege dubbed the Summer of Mercy. Uh, They started out targeting Dr. George Tiller's clinic, who was assassinated in 2009 because of his work. Uh, But back in 1991, the city is overrun with anti-abortion protesters. And a lot of other clinics around the country were also being hit by groups like Operation Rescue. They had gone to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, to Atlanta, to California. Um, And it it was a climate that becomes really untenable for a lot of abortion providers and their patients that are trying to access care. Um, So a group of, of abortion rights activists had seen that Mifepristone, then called RU486, was available in the market in the late 80s in France, and they thought that if they could bring it to the United States, this would be one way to help remove the issue of abortion Mm -hmm. from the clinic, which at that time was being targeted uh, by these extreme forces. Yeah, you mentioned Operation Rescue there. Now, in the pod, you describe protests that were happening outside of clinics, 
Uh, and one of the people that we meet in the first episode of the series is Randall Terry, who is the founder of Operation Rescue. I want to play a little clip of him talking about how he decided to become an anti-abortion activist. I had a vision of a, a scroll coming down in front of my eyes with instructions on it on what I was to do to bring abortion in America to an end. And I saw thousands of people in front of abortion clinics. I saw myself on the Phil Donahue show. I knew that I was going to be on Phil Donahue. So what else did you learn, TJ, by by talking with an anti-abortion activist from that time period? Yeah, I mean, Randall has been at it uh, since the late 1980s, and he's still active today. When Roe versus Wade was ultimately overturned last year, he was on the steps of the Supreme Court. And um, Operation Rescue is is no longer active as an organization. Uh, but Randall is counseling uh, up-and-coming anti-abortion activists. Um, in the last few months, there were a group of protesters who hid in a closet uh, ahead of a Walgreens share- shareholder meeting mm-hmm. and jumped out of the closet uh, to demand that they not sell Mifepristone. And Randall has been in touch with one of those activists. Uh, he also told me, which we will you know, share in the series as well, that uh, the FACE Act, the Freedom to Access Clinic Entry, Act, which after, you know, this violent period in the 90s was passed uh, by Bill Clinton uh, to give people a federal right to access clinics that, you know, he's hoping and working with activists to overturn that FACE Act now that there's no longer a constitutional right to abortion. They are wondering, well, why should there be federal protection to enter a clinic? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, he's he's hoping for a future where, you know, mifepristone will be banned, which will mean a return to clinics. And then on top of that, removing federal protection to access those clinics. So he's hoping for a future that looks a lot like uh, the early 1990s. Right, right. Uh, And as we we talked about, are you. 486, which is what uh, mifepristone is, is otherwise known as. Uh, it came about as, you know, abortion clinics continued to be a contentious issue. But let's go back in history for a bit, TJ. The, the drug was legal in parts of Europe and, and Asia, but it was initially banned in the U.S. Why was that? Yes. Yeah, so the the George H.W. Bush administration, when they first come into office, they uh, direct the FDA to issue Uh, an import alert, which essentially says that no one is allowed to bring uh, this medication into the country, not even small amounts for personal use. Um, From the people, uh, the folks that I've spoken to, also watching congressional hearings from that time, uh, the decision seems to be politically motivated. You know, the H.W. Bush administration uh, was not interested in expanding access to abortion, so they put it on this import list. Um, and that's kind of where our story in the new season of Cover Up the Pill Plot picks up. Um, we follow national abortion rights activists like uh, Larry Later, who was one of the original founders of the influential group NARL, um, and his book uh, simply called Abortion was cited in the Roe v. Wade decision eight times. Uh, Later, at this point in the early 90s, is 72, and he cooks up this wild scheme to find a pregnant woman uh, who's early in her pregnancy fly with her from New York to London, get the pill illegally in England, fly back to New York, tip customs off about this, Mm -hmm. and then intentionally be stopped by the government 
Um, and that's what winds up happening in, in July 1992. And it, it kind of lays part of the groundwork for eventually why Mifepristone gets across the line. Yeah, let's walk through that uh, as well. Uh, this is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just joining us, we're talking about a new podcast series. It's called Cover Up the Pill Plot. And it documents the wild story of how Mifepristone became legally available in the U.S. back in the 1990s. And today, access to the drug, as we know, hangs in the balance. We're waiting for a final Supreme Court ruling. So our guest right now is the creator and host of the series, T.J. Raphael. So, T.J., you just introduced us to one of the two main characters there. You said uh, Larry later, uh, he comes into the series and he's uh, he's an abortion rights activist. Let's hear a little bit from a clip that you play here. It's an interview that later gave that you feature in the series. I happen to believe that these abortion laws should be broken right and left, as at least a million women a year are doing. Uh, I think that the only way we can eliminate them is to go to court, to break them openly and openly over and over again. I don't think you meant to imply, Larry, that the way to cope with this is to encourage people to break the law. I'm sure you... They're already the, breaking it. They've been know, breaking it for 100 years. You cannot advocate I, anarchy on our program, so... I <laughs> don't know whether I'm talking anarchy, leftism, rightism. I'm well, talking common can, sense. We... So break it down for us, DJ. I mean, why, or how, I should say, did, did Larry become an abortion rights activist? And, and why did he feel that this was the way forward, right? And what, what was his inspiration for the for the plot? That whole scheme. Yes. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So Larry later gets involved in abortion rights long before the Roe v. Wade decision comes down. He's actually a really close friend uh, when he's wrapping up his time at Harvard as a student with Betty Ferdan, who at that time was still an undergraduate at Smith College. And um, Larry just thinks that abortion is a fundamental human right, that in order for people to be truly free, they need uh, the ability to terminate a pregnancy uh, should they want or need that. Um, So Larry, uh, he starts out as a journalist after college. Uh, He also served in World War II. And when he's writing, he's stringing for places like The New Yorker, Life magazine, Um, And he decides he wants to write a book. He thinks, you know, to become an author would be the next step in his career. And he's searching for a subject to write a a book about. And he says, well, no one's ever written a book about Margaret Stanger, who is, uh, you know, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Stanger does have, uh, you know, what today we would consider a fraught legacy with uh, ties to eugenics. Uh, But Stanger also, uh, you know, like I said, that that legacy is fraught because she also um, helped pave the way for birth control in the United States. But uh, Larry spends time with Stanger at the end of her life uh, while she's in um, a retirement home in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, writing her biography, and he gleans inspiration for this Mifepristone plot uh, based off of a similar thing that Sanger did in the 1930s. Mm. She was trying to legalize birth control. So she, uh, in what's called the one package case, had a Japanese doctor mail her her colleague a package of pests pessiaries, which is like a diaphragm. Um, and she intentionally, you know, made sure that the government knew that that this doctor um, was receiving it. The doctor had written a prescription for Sanger to use the pessiaries. Uh, the case goes through the courts and it, eventually it finds that 
um, you know, contraceptives are considered medically necessary, which helps pave the way uh, for the legalization of birth control. So Larry, having written the biography of Margaret Sanger, um, you know, this is in, you know, the, the 50s, uh, by the early 90s, he's he's struggling um, to try to get Mifepristone here. He's working with mm. folks like Ellie Smeal at the Feminist Majority Foundation, Patricia Ireland, the president of the National Organization for Women, to lobby the French makers of this pill to bring it to the United States to submit an application for the FDA. But they are very hesitant because of the extreme violence that clinics are facing and also uh, what they viewed as a hostile administration at George H.W. Bush of this was before Clinton's election. Right, right. So Larry says, you know, uh, let's use the one package case as as our muse and essentially models his his pill plot to smuggle uh, Mifepristone into the United States off of uh, the work that Sanger had done years before. Right. And of course, as you mentioned, I mean, he needed someone who was pregnant to, to try to bring in the pill. So tell us now about Leona Benton. How'd she get connected to him? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the key to the whole thing. Larry uh, could not get a prescription for Mifepristone himself, so he needed to find a pregnant woman. Um, at this time in the early 90s, Mifepristone was only available for use uh, through the eighth week, so up until the ninth week. Um, so Larry starts uh, reaching out to all of his contacts. He contacts doctors, uh, clinic workers, uh, feminist groups on college campuses, and he's searching and searching for what he calls the Jane Roe of the 1990s. Uh, and finally, uh, through a couple of fixers, again, I, I feel like this is an Ocean's Eleven story. Larry has some fixers all over the country, people putting out the word. He gets a call um, from Steve Heilig, who's the director of uh, the San Francisco Medical Society. And Steve says, I found someone. And this woman, Leona Benton, she went to Women's Choice Clinic in Oakland, California, and uh, she was about six weeks pregnant. She was going to get a surgical abortion. Um, when the clinic said to her, hey, we've got this person looking to do this kind of crazy thing. Go challenge the Supreme Court. What do you think? Are you up for it? Yeah. And she says yes. <laughs> and so she signs up. And within 24 hours of signing up, she's on a plane from San Francisco to New York and then New York to London to get the pills wow. uh, because she was six and a half weeks pregnant. And the pill, again, could only be used through the end of the eighth week. So in order for the plot to happen, they had to move quickly. Oh, my goodness. And everything that we're discussing, of course, is it, really it's like the beginning of the saga, right? I mean, mm, right. <laughs> without too many more yes. spoilers, I mean, where do you take it from here in, in the podcast? Yeah, so Larry and Leona return from uh, London. They are stopped by customs. Uh, they fight to get the pill back in the courts. Ultimately, they do not succeed. Uh, Leona winds up having a surgical abortion um, to end her pregnancy. She told the Associated Press, uh, quote, and no one will stop me. Uh, so she's able mm. to get the care that she, she asked for. Um, Larry actually squirreled away an extra dose of mifepristone, then called RU486, uh, that he didn't tell customs about, that he had on him. I've actually spoke with uh, Larry's lawyer, who was representing him at the time, as well as Leona Benton's lawyer, who had represented her at the time. Mm -hmm. They don't know how he did it, but That's he had wild. it. And, and Larry keeps this pill, and he decides that he's going to make an American copy of RU486 of Mifepristone, and he builds a secret lab in Westchester County in New York, about 30 minutes outside of New York City, wow. and he hires uh, master chemists from some of the biggest universities, has them work in secret. One of these doctors is given the pseudonym Dr. X. 
they're able to replicate uh, the French version of the pill. Larry had also somehow acquired a Chinese version of the pill. They're able to nail down the exact chemical composition, you know, think the recipe for Coca-Cola. And uh, they then use that to test thousands of women in the United States. They get um, approval from the FDA to do these tests. And that goes a long way in, number one, keeping the pressure up and keeping Mifepristone in the news in right. the late 90s, uh, and also aiding uh, the group that winds up actually getting the packet, patent uh, excuse me, for the French drug mm-hmm. in the late 90s. Wow. Um, so, oh yeah, goodness. I mean, we go in. This I, is I'm wild. The first journalist, I'm the first journalist to uncover the location of this lab. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other twists and turns in this story, which, again, blows my mind that it hasn't been told yet. Because yeah. Mifepristone now accounts for more than half of all abortions in the United States. Um, and, and given the threat that it now faces, uh, this wild history, I think, is you know part of women's history and and part of American history. Yeah, and and, and this, and this is it. why folks need to listen to your podcast. Tell us where and when the show will be available, TJ. Yeah, so the uh, folks that are interested can find the show on July first. You can search "Cover Up the Pill Plot." Uh, it'll be on Apple Podcasts early access there, and then on Monday, July third. If you're off enjoying the holiday and you want. Uh, something for your road trip to listen to. Search any podcast app for Cover Up the Pill Plot. Uh, we've got seven episodes. Awesome. And yeah, what what I'm sharing is is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. TJ Raphael is the creator and host of the series Cover Up the Pill Plot. It's available on Apple Podcasts by paid subscription on July 1st and on all platforms on the 3rd of July. TJ, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sasha.